0: All understand that academic achievement is so much more than just grades and exams. And today we're going to dive into a critical aspect that's often overlooked the profound impact of emotional well being on students and its connectedness to their academic success. So, welcome, wonderful listeners. Welcome back to the Literacy Lounge podcast, the show where we explore the essential elements that shapes the educational landscape. I'm your host, Sierra Harris, and today's episode is one that hits close to home for anyone invested in the success and well being of our students. Research consistently shows that the emotional well being of students is not just a side note, but instead a cornerstone of their academic journey. How students navigate stress, build resilience, and foster positive emotional health directly influences their ability to excel in the classroom, and specifically in literacy. So today we're going to explore the interconnectedness of emotional well-being and academic success, shedding light on the factors that contribute to a thriving student experience. And of course, I could not do this alone today. So joining us is a true advocate for student well-being, Sarah Cotrocarlo. So Sarah is a professional school counselor with over a decade of school counseling experience. After serving in a public school district, She shifted her focus to serving other school counselors by creating research-based resources and promoting best practices through professional development trainings. Each year, she reaches thousands of educators and counselors across the world through her website, her social media channels, trainings, and her counseling resources. So warm welcome to Sarah Cotracarlo. Her insights are bound to deepen our understanding of the vital link between emotional well-being and academic success. So without further delay, let's dive into this enriching conversation.
1: Teaching skills like reading comprehension doesn't have to be overwhelming. With the right tools and strategies in place, you can find success for you and your students step into The Literacy Lounge, the podcast that will give you the what, why, and how to elevate your literacy instruction and get the results you've always wanted. Here's your host and veteran elementary school teacher, Sierra Harris. Hi, Sarah. Welcome
2: to The Literacy Lounge. Hello, Sierra. Thank you so much for having me here.
0: You are so welcome. I am I'm so excited to bring this unique perspective to our listeners out there. You know, when we think about reading and comprehension and getting our students to be successful readers, we think about all the the hurdles, right, that they have in their way, skill deficits or, you know, lack of vocabulary or not having enough schema. But there's a lot more really that goes into whether or not a student is ready to be a strong reader and ready to comprehend. So I'm so excited to have you here to really talk about kind of the other side of literacy, which is, is a student even ready to be a reader when it comes to their social and emotional well-being and how that concept connects directly to literacy success,
2: Absolutely, because it is super connected. And I love how you phrased it in terms of thinking about a student's barriers to comprehension, because as a school counselor, a lot of the work that we do, especially as we're consulting with teachers, is what are the barriers getting in the way of this student being academically successful? And what are some of those barriers that maybe we as counselors have sort of a different attunement to that we can help with?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm really excited. The questions we've got today for you, I think, are really going to bring to light some great reflective time for teachers who are listening to kind of think about specific students that they may have in their classroom and where where potentially could they provide more support or different support, uh, whether it's from themselves or from other school counselors like yourself. To, to help them feel and be successful in reading. So let's just jump right in here and talk about the phrase social emotional well-being. So what do you mean when we're talking about social emotional well-being? What does that phrase mean?
2: Yeah, because that's a pretty... Big phrase, and it can be a little bit vague and all-encompassing. In in the elementary world, I really think of it as two things. So one is it is the presence or absence of some specific skill sets. So that means social skills, like our students' abilities to positively connect with and understand others, decision-making skills, and regulation skills, so identifying, expressing, and taking care of feelings. And then also we can view it as the absence or presence of more general mental well-being or mental concerns like anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms, ADHD symptoms.
0: Absolutely. Great definition. I'm already starting to see some like nuggets where I can see connections directly to literacy. I'm getting my Doctorate right now in literacy. Um, I'm going through the uh, Saint John University over in New York City, which is really cool. But one of the things that I'm finding in a lot of my research, even in just the very first semester I just started, but is reading is so ingrained in culture and so ingrained in in our society norms in our conversations. Like when we think about whether a student has a functional social emotional uh, foundation, you know, from their home life, their school life, wherever, that's a direct connection to literacy. It's so much more connected than I ever thought it was. So I cannot wait to dive more into this. So let's go into this then. So does social emotional well-being have any connection or correlation with how we learn in general?
2: Yes, 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 a million times, yes, absolutely, in both really direct and indirect ways. So one of the biggest reasons that there is this huge push for social-emotional learning in the schools right now is because the research supports it. And when I say the research supports it, I mean that when implemented well, SEL doesn't just impact discipline and mental health, it improves grades and test scores, both we think Indirectly, right, when students are having less difficulty managing the expectations of the classroom in the school, when they are mentally healthy, they are better able to learn. But also because of what you touched on and that there are some elements of social emotional learning that are foundational skills to some of the higher order thinking um, and some of the higher order activities that we're asking students to engage in. So huge proponent of SEL, not just as someone whose brain and heart feels so deeply about social emotional learning, but also from the perspective of that is crucial for our students learning and academic success. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, think about, I always try to connect it back to
0: me, right? We we want our students to grow up to be successful and functional members of society. So I always think about me as hopefully a functional, <laughs> supportive member of society some days, Right some days better than others but when i think about myself there are days where i'm just mentally done you know I've, my kids have taken a toll on me my job has taken a toll on me and it it absolutely affects how i show up for that day and i know everyone out there can absolutely relate so when we think about you know the social and emotional well-being of our students they're coming to school with those same exact feelings and emotions and you know, upbringings or whatever it may be that absolutely affect their ability to do their job, which is to learn. Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. And also, I think as humans, so many of us are creatures of connection and we learn and grow best in the context of connection with others. Which is amazing because schools are full of classrooms, which means our students are constantly being given the opportunity to connect with others. But if those connections are not super positive or strong, then that is in itself a barrier to their learning.
0: Oh, yeah, I absolutely can see that. So that kind of brings me then to another good question. So then what specific role do you think peer relationships play in a student's emotional or sorry social emotional well-being and then also how does this
2: relate to their academic performance yeah so first and foremost when a student is feeling lonely or isolated which i know a lot of us are seeing more and more post pandemic or if they have friends but they're in conflict with their friends their emotional well-being is going to suffer. And this is extra true for our older students because the older our students get, the more important those peer relationships and peer connections are. And I've seen this impact their academic performance in a couple of ways. So you know, first, if a student is really upset in the moment because they've just experienced what they perceived as rejection or they've just gotten into it with a friend, then they're dysregulated. They're gonna have a really hard time focusing or giving their best effort. Um, and then, second, we often ask our students to work in pairs or groups, which I love. I think that's a phenomenal thing. Cooperative learning is a research-based instructional practice. I'm all four of them working together. But the tricky part is that if a student is struggling with peer relationships, then they're also probably going to struggle with them in an academic context, right? And so that could mean that they are having stress or difficulty in trying to find others to work with, or it could look like you've partnered them up or they're working in their small groups and they have a tough time using positive group work skills, which is then impacting everybody's ability to, you know, really attend to and get as much out of the project or assignment as they can. I
0: mean, I just, the more you talk about all this, the more I'm reflecting on students that I remember having in my classrooms. And I can see all of this taking place. It's more common and happening. I guarantee is in every classroom of every listener that's out there. And I heard you use the word um, like dysregulated, like having students, you know, they're, they're dysregulated, they're thrown off of their, whatever their norm would be. So let's start digging in now to, I think we can absolutely say for certain that, you know, a student's social, emotional well-being directly impacts learning in general. But what if we break it down and really focus on literacy or comprehension? So my question then would be, how does the dysregulation or the regulation part of that connect to a student's ability to actually comprehend a text?
2: Yeah. So let's make sure first that everybody is sort of on the same page when we're talking about these words, regulated, regulation, dysregulation, self-regulation, all of that. So a really sort of brief definition we can use is we can say that being regulated means that our brains and bodies are calm, alert, and ready to do whatever the job or task is for our students ready to learn. So being regulated means that our energy levels match the energy that is needed for the task and that our brains are able to focus on that task as well. Because when we're regulated, our prefrontal cortex, that thinking part of our brain, the brain that we really need to do tricky deep thinking tasks like reading comprehension are engaged. We want to be regulated so that we can do that, which means then that if a kiddo is tired or angry or worried or stressed, they're dysregulated, their focus is off, their energy level is too high or too low, their prefrontal cortex isn't able to be in action, and they're going to have a really hard time comprehending. Because especially when we're talking about analyzing a text, making connections, predicting things, that is some higher order thinking. And they need their prefrontal cortex for that. They need to be regulated and focused. And when they're not, then what we might have is either just blatant, uh, inability to begin the task, or we might see a little bit of what you talked about some of in the first episode with the consumption versus comprehension. So, you know, I think we've all experienced as adults where we are reading something in front of us. And if we were reading out loud, it would sound great. We would sound so beautifully fluent. (laughs) However, none of that actually stuck into our brains, right? Mm -mm. Because our mind was elsewhere. You know, maybe we were stressed about something or we just weren't focusing on the right thing. And the same is true for our kids. So sometimes when a kiddo is dysregulated, as I said, we might see them not even engage in the task at all. But I think for some of our students, especially some of our older students, outwardly regulated, they might be able to sit there with their text in a calm body. But the truth is that their brain is dysregulated. And even if their eyes are reading the words on the page, their brain is not actually comprehending it and then doing some of that other deep thinking work that is required to analyze the text and respond to some of those deeper prompts. It makes
0: so much sense because I preach to the teachers that I work with, if they know anything about me, if they've ever heard me do any kind of PD or read any blog of mine or anything, they know that I am a huge advocate of using metacognitive strategies. So teaching your kids to visualize, ask questions, um, make connections, determine importance, etc. And the reason why is because when you think about all of those strategies, versus regular skills like main idea, text structure, characters, et cetera, metacognitive strategies are student-centric. I don't even know if that's a word, but I've, I've cloned it. I've, I've made it my own like term. It works. But I mean, if you think about it, like you have to be an active reader. You have to have your brain actively turned on. That prefrontal cortex, like you said, has to be functioning in order for you to accomplish those strategies things like main idea and characters those are text centric they don't involve me at all it's all about the text um so when you when you talk about you know a student needing to be well regulated it makes sense that if they're even trying to do these strategies these metacognitive strategies and if they're not regulated they're it's not going to to work. Like they just will, their brain won't function that way. Right. Even if they want it to. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it it all is just clicking beautifully and it makes me think about the students who, you know, when I was teaching, I I taught metacognition, I taught schema, I taught visualization and I, you know, I drilled it into my students and that's really where I wanted them to be functioning because I knew everything else after that would come into place. But I still had students. Even so, even after teaching all of that, that struggled. And so I'm wondering now if it had to do with their ability to self-regulate and were they even ready in their brains to comprehend what else was going on, what else could I have done when it comes to their social-emotional well-being to have given them some more support or different support Mm. to help them be successful in comprehension.
2: Yeah, I think that's possible. I think that the regulation piece is huge. And I think also when we're talking about texts that are fiction or sometimes biographies, then there's some other social emotional skills that are really foundational, I think, for some of those metacognitive strategies for schema. So, for example, students need to be able to identify and understand characters or uh, the focus of a biography's thoughts feelings, motivations, their perspectives, their goals, their motivations. And if a student struggles with understanding those things in themselves which some of them are, then it's going to be that much harder for them to be able to understand those in others when they are reading. And so that's sort of this other layer of foundational skills that are needed that we don't think of as being related to literacy, Mm -hmm. but very much so are when it comes to comprehension.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I always try to make what I'm teaching concrete, meaning like make it relate to their own lives before we actually make it relate to a text. So it makes perfect sense that if they're not able to, you know, make those types of observations in characters and stuff, maybe they're having trouble doing it with within themselves. I love that. So are there specific aspects of social emotional well-being that you've observed to be like particularly influential when it comes to enhancing or even hindering a student's reading comprehension?
2: Definitely. So two come to mind. One, of course, is regulation, which we've talked about a lot and that our students need to be mentally and physically regulated in order to comprehend. Um, The other is around mindset. So their core beliefs, their internal thoughts, which could mean their mindset and beliefs about themselves, specifically themselves as a learner, as a student, as a reader, their self-esteem and their self-competence. And also their mindset and beliefs around school or learning or reading. Because, you know, the truth is, is that even when teachers have the autonomy to select or create really high interest texts, which is, you know, kind of a big if, not everybody's able to do that. But even when they are, sometimes at the end of the day, you're asking kids to read things they're not interested in Mm -hmm. or that they think are hard. And in those cases, if a student doesn't believe and think in their brain kind of automatically that they are capable and that the work is important, then their comprehension is going to suffer because their focus and their effort aren't going to be there
0: absolutely i completely agree and it's so funny like i feel like <laughs> you had to have like been in my brain years <laughs> and years ago back when i was designing my boost comprehension workshop which is a workshop i do every summer for teachers it's uh usually late july kind of right before people start going back to school cuz you know here in indiana we go back to school First week of August, sometimes even in July, which is crazy. Um, But in this workshop, the very, very first lesson, it's a 10-day workshop. The very first thing we do is talk about reading is me, reading is thinking, and reading is power. And reading is me talks about how, you know, reading is a personal experience, um, how we are all readers despite our hurdles, despite if we can't read fast, despite if I can't decode words, because reading is really all about thinking. And I have a brain and I can think, therefore, I'm already a reader. And the other piece to this, a later lesson in that workshop, I believe it's actually the very, either second to last or last, doesn't matter. Um, But we talk about the growth mindsets aspect of comprehension or of literacy. And we focus on like, what if it's too hard? What if I don't like it? Like these are the actual lessons that I give teachers because I want my students to understand what to do and how their brain actually works differently when they are presented with a text that they think is too hard, and more importantly, when they are not interested in. Like your brain, and correct me if I'm wrong. Your brain literally has like a little switch of like interest and not interested in in it, and it works differently based on interest alone. So I love that. these lessons are just completely aligning to exactly what you were saying about the whole mindset behind like, I have to believe that I'm a reader. I have to believe that I can do hard things. I have to believe that, you know, I I have the strategies in my toolbox to when I'm presented with something that's too difficult or something that's not fun, that I know how to get through it successfully. And I think all of that is so important to like explicitly teach the beginning of the year and reiterate throughout the year for all of your students.
2: Absolutely. 100% because The moment that you begin to introduce a task or an assignment to a student, the moment that you put that in front of them, their brain is generating a lot of automatic thoughts. And Mm -hmm. those thoughts deeply impact how they feel and then how they perform. And when you can do that explicit work ahead of time, you're starting to shape some of their core beliefs, which is going to really positively impact the automatic thoughts that pop into their brain when they're given a reading comprehension task.
0: Absolutely. I love it. If teachers are listening and they're like, oh, I want more information on this workshop. So I would say get on my email list, uh, make sure you're there and be on the lookout come probably sometime early July uh, for information on the Boost Comprehension Workshop. That's awesome. All right, so kind of getting into the nitty-gritty now. So how do you think educators and counselors, or how can they identify when a student's reading challenges stem from social-emotional concerns versus purely academic or cognitive difficulties? Like, how can you tell the difference?
2: I love detective work, which is what this is, right? So uh, two things come to mind. So first is really thinking about what is the student's emotional state when they're being asked to perform reading tasks? are they calm and alert and focused or are they stressed and distracted? So thinking back in the past about recent tasks and then also sort of observing that into the future to see what role might regulation be playing, right? Because if, they're, if they seem calm, alert, and focused and they're still struggling, that would be a clue that this is an academic concern, right? Versus if we're noticing they're stressed or distracted when they're engaging in something, we can't rule that out as an issue. And then the second thing is to take a look at the consistency of their performance, because if they are consistently struggling with uh, reading comprehension or other academic concerns, then it is possible that this is a really pervasive social-emotional concern, but it's a little bit more of a clue that this is an academic or cognitive struggle that they're having versus if we see inconsistent performance. if we're seeing some days they are knocking it out of the park. And some days you're wondering if their brain went for a little walk. That is going to be a clue for us that their performance level is um, dependent on either their emotional state or their effort and motivation level.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is why it is so important for teachers to find time to have conferences. There's one-on-one conferences Specifically under the umbrella of literacy or reading, sit down with your readers, let them read to you, ask them questions, talk to them about a text. And then that way you not only have time to kind of look at the academic side of things, but then you also can see kind of where their social emotional well being is in that moment. And they, they, you know, may have worried eyes, just like little cues or things that might like, tell you that something's going on that just opens up. The opportunity to connect and converse and figure out maybe what's going on. If I'm constantly giving assessments and I have no connection to the person behind the assessment, then it's going to be very hard for me to pick up on the fact that maybe they looked calm, maybe they looked collective, but maybe there is something going on that they're just really good at not expressing emotionally, they're just keeping it all inside. I can think of a lot of students that I've had in the past that were very much like that. They were just quiet, they kept it all to themselves and you know it definitely most likely affected their academic performance. But if I'm not taking the the time myself to connect with these students, sit down with them whether there's a test there or not, but connect with them and be able to figure out what's going on, I think that would be another thing that I would add to your list to make sure that you know kind of all three of those things are absolutely happening.
2: Definitely. I think, too, sometimes we can really frankly ask a student, hey, no matter your response, you're not in trouble. I'm not mad. How much effort do you think you put into this? And you've established a really strong relationship with them. You're Mm -hmm. being honest about your motivations for asking the question and that there's no consequences attached to it there's a really good chance you're going to get an honest answer. And that also is giving you a little bit of a clue, like maybe they just weren't feeling it that day. But for you, this was supposed to be a really high impact assessment that you were going to base more instruction or grades on. And it's really good to have that, you know, that little piece. I think so often we forget that our upper elementary students are very capable, oftentimes very capable of honestly assessing their own effort level on things and giving them the opportunity to express that both gives you information, but it also is sort of a little self-monitoring tool for them, um, which can help them in the future as well.
0: Absolutely. I think having consistent reflective practices in your classroom is one of the most powerful tools that you actually can give your students. Not only will they understand the importance of reflecting, but if you have routines in place or systems in place in your classroom that allow that reflection it kind of puts the responsibility back on the students and like you said we get a lot of really honest feedback from them about their you know how much effort they put in what their confidence level was I mean I've seen this idea everywhere but I promise you I did it like you know 10-15 years ago back when I was in the classroom but I had you know a red tub a green tub and a yellow tub And when we turned in our papers, they had to choose which tub to put in based on their level of confidence. I didn't do effort. I did confidence because I wanted to see, like, you know, if there was a student who did really well, but maybe they they were just unsure, like, having a brief little conversation with them to be like, you know, why were you not confident in this? Like, you nailed it. Like, give them a boost. But then kind of on the other side, maybe there was a kid who... Thought they aced it and they didn't. And so we need to talk about like using your visuals, looking back at the steps, whatever, whatever the situation may be. But it opened up some really great reflective opportunities for them, but then allowed me to connect with them to be like, What listen? Let's be honest in our reflective practices, but then also, you know, seeing kind of where some of that confusion took place. So I think it's important, like I said, to have those reflective. Um, practices and routines in place for that especially to happen. So I want to know, do you have any success stories uh, where social emotional interventions had maybe a noticeable impact on a student's reading or academic abilities?
2: Sure. So, you know, I have to admit that as a counselor, I'm not the one who is usually seeing or tracking the academic impact of interventions because my data collection is usually emotion or behavior focused. Uh, But I do have one example for you. So one year, I had two classrooms. I had many, many classrooms, but two that I (laughs) want to share about. One third grade, one fourth grade who struggled a lot with regulation. There was so much anger and anxiety and ADHD and sometimes all of them at once, in each of those rooms. And I could tell just from my biweekly SEL push-in lessons what an impact their dysregulation was having on their ability to learn. And because it was so many of them, instead of creating a ton of individual interventions, although you know some of them had their own supports, I implemented a class-level intervention for each. And the intervention was just chair bands and seat discs. Do you know what I'm talking about with those tools? Absolutely. I love those things. Yeah, so I went into each classroom for about seven minutes to teach and model how to appropriately use the tools, as well as to teach them how to identify when and if they needed to use them. They put the bands on their chairs while I was in there, and the seat discs lived on a shelf where they could easily access them when they needed. So this is pretty low-key and and low effort involved on the grown-ups' behalf. And because this was a little experiment for our school, we were not using those tools with our gen ed students. I collected some data because I was hopeful that it would have enough of an impact that it could support us purchasing more for the remainder of the school. And the data found an increased percentage of students spending their time on task before and after the intervention, decreased work uh incompletion before and after, and Both of those homerooms showed greater mean changes in their reading assessment over the year compared to the other homerooms, which was a huge win because even many years ago when I implemented this, reading scores were paramount, right? And so because it was such a success, we did end up as a school ordering discs and bands for every classroom uh, and also introduced Classroom Calm Corners the next year as well noting that this level of regulation support could have and did have a really big impact on their reading scores. That is a fantastic
0: story. And I have to say that school was so uh, so lucky to have you, <laughs> as, you. Their, as their guru and cheerleader there. That is fantastic. And yeah, I mean, something is simple. I mean, it was just bands and chair desks. Yep. And the, look at the impact that it had not only for the students, but think about the teacher too. Like they were probably yes. able to breathe and actually do their job better. So I know there's probably success successes all around there. So that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So the big question, I know that that teachers and listeners out there are really wanting... They're, they've bought into all of this, they agree, but they want strategies. They want some action steps that they can take. So what are some quick strategies that teachers and listeners out there can use to promote social-emotional regulation or encourage students to kind of self-regulate so that their brains and their bodies are ready to practice comprehension and literacy skills?
2: Yes, this is my jam, both doing this myself in classrooms, but also getting to work with teachers and helping them implement it themselves because teachers are the ones in the classrooms all the time who are able to coach and reinforce students through all of these strategies. I loved how you mentioned earlier in your course, how the importance of explicitly teaching and modeling some of these skills, because that's what I had on this list. I made notes about how I wanted to answer this question, and on this list has we need to explicitly teach, model, and practice what to do when you're distracted, Mm -hmm. teach, model, and practice what to do when you're frustrated, and teach, model, and practice what to do when you're bored. And these can be mini lessons. Each of those can be a 10 to 15 little mini lesson, right? Where you're talking about what does it... Look like and feel like when those things are happening. And then what are the different strategies that you can use in order to sort of combat them? And then allowing the students to engage in some practice in doing so. And then because you've done this work together, like I said, the teacher is able to coach and reinforce those skills in the moment. So I think that's huge and that's paramount right there. I also really highly recommend all classrooms have a classroom peace corner or at the very least have some calming and sensory tools available for students to take back to their own desks if you don't have a designated space in your room. Um, And with that, I don't mean making the very large mistake that I did the first time I rolled this out, (laughs) which was to make these great boxes and deliver them to the classrooms and run. Like any procedure in the classroom, again, that's something that has to be really explicitly taught modeled and practiced. So I highly recommend that being sort of a whole lesson in itself when you're ready to implement that and then providing some support and some reviews just like you do with all your other procedures after breaks. And then the last strategy I think to consider that is also really regulation focused is to implement or facilitate mindfulness activities right before really deep comprehension tasks, especially if, for example, you have those tasks after recess, after lunch, after related arts, or even sometimes first thing in the morning, because we know that... Sometimes the kid, our kiddos, you know, they got pushed or name called on the bus. Their mom yelled at them in the morning on the way in. So, even if we're doing this first thing in the morning, I know so many reading blocks are first thing. Our students are sometimes coming into us already dysregulated. And so, a quick mindfulness activity this could be using a different breathing strategy together as a class. And with our bigger kids, maybe we're giving them some choice and agency. And it is a student job in the classroom to select. Which strategy are we going to all do together today? Right. It could be doing guided imagery. It could be doing yoga. Or if you are really thinking like, I am not going to lead any of this. I feel super uncomfortable with this. Then it could just be as simple as pulling up go noodle videos. Um, there's a couple different channels on there where you can access some free tools that are really easy to implement at these sort of high stakes times when they're when you know your students really need to be regulated. And maybe there have been some potential triggers that might mean some are not quite ready yet. Their brains and bodies aren't quite ready yet.
0: Well, those are fantastic strategies. Thank you for sharing that. And I love that all of them, like none of them are really taking any extra like time, money or resources. They're all things that you just need to buy into to feel the worth of and then make time for. And I think if we want our students to be more successful, I think we can all spare two or three minutes prior to, like you said, identifying those those bigger moments where they're go- going to be asked to do some of that more critical thinking type skills or strategies and comprehension, but taking two or three minutes or so beforehand and giving them time to just center themselves, relax, focus. I mean, I think that's a a lifelong strategy, really, that you're teaching them, not just something that you're wanting them to do in the classroom. But I mean, think about it in life as well, before you go do a big project for work, or, you know, before I tackle cleaning this house, like, I almost want to sit down and just be like, you know, woosa <laughs> and get myself <laughs> focused. I think it applies to so many other things, but giving them time to get regulated, to get focused and get calm and ready. And to kind of even, I think, saying, you know, some some mantras in their, in their mind too. You know, I can do this. I believe in myself. I can do hard things.
2: Absolutely. It is definitely a life skill. And I think I know for some teachers, engaging or facilitating these activities and having these conversations might not be 100% comfortable just yet because it's new and not everybody is taught how to do this in their teacher prep programs. And I also know that for some of our students... It can be a little bit uncomfortable. And so one of the most powerful things that I think a teacher can do, you already mentioned Sierra, and that is connecting it to yourself. And so I think when a teacher is able to say, hey, when somebody cuts in front of me when I'm driving to work in the morning, I notice my heart start beating fast and my face gets hot and I'm a little angry. And I know that before I get to school, I need to calm myself down so that my brain is in the best headspace it can be to teach and spend the day with you guys. And so what I do is I take three deep breaths and then I visualize my favorite vacation that we ever went on. And It doesn't erase my angry feeling, but it sure does make me feel better. And then from there, connecting that to some of the experiences that students might have in the classroom that trigger them and that might require them to use some of these coping or regulation strategies is going to make it feel more natural for the teacher to do. And it is also going to help build some of the student investment in this, right? Because just like we need our students to be invested in learning and reading and using the metacognitive strategies, we also need them to be invested in engaging in these regulation opportunities or activities that we're providing them.
0: Absolutely. Investment. I mean, I think about, you know, when I work with teachers and you probably experience this too, working with teachers, buy-in is everything. Like if they're not going to buy into what you're saying, it doesn't matter how good you teach or how good of a presenter I am at professional development or what I say, none of it matters. Buy-in is like the number one thing. So getting your kids to buy in and invest in why they're at school, why reading is important, you know, why they need to be self-regulated, why we're doing this strategy and that strategy. I think it's really important to focus on that why to create that investment and buy-in because then you're just going to find so much more uh, success on the other end because of it. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, you are clearly a wealth of knowledge and nuggets of information, and I'm so glad that I asked you to be on the show. This was a fantastic episode, and I know our listeners out there probably have thought about specific students they've had in their classroom. Hopefully, they're reflecting on maybe some current practices and times and and strategies that they could put in place to really ensure that their students are regulated and ready to tackle those big, more complex tasks. Um, uh, that they are being asked to do so uh, before we go i want to make sure that our listeners out there know how to get a hold of you so where can they find more information about you uh, in your little neck of the woods
2: of course uh, our website is theresponsivecounselor.com. and you can find me on instagram and facebook as the responsive counselor as well I truly love getting to consult and work with teachers to help them support their students. I know not every school even has an elementary school counselor. And so anytime I'm able to share ideas or resources or just be kind of another brain to pick on something, I am happy to be there for that.
0: Well, we thank you so much for being all of our personal school counselors. We're dubbing you thus. And I will, for listeners out there, I will put all of her links in the show notes. So that way, if you would like to go check her out, grab her website or follow her on Instagram, all of those links are in the show notes. So you can just click and go. And so thank you again, Sarah, for being here. I learned a ton and I hope our listeners did too. We really appreciate your time, your knowledge and your energy today. Yes. Thank you, Sierra. Listeners, we will see you over in the next episode.
1: Bye, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Literacy Lounge with Sierra Harris. You can find any of the resources mentioned in the show notes at com slash podcast. If you're looking for more support with Close Reading, download the free Close Reading Guidebook at www.buildingcomprehension.com close-reading-guidebook. Until next time, happy reading.